This week, the Down and Nerdy Podcast is brought to you by Claritin D. And shout out to the folks at Claritin who not just sponsored the show, but also provided some samples as well. Tis the season to breathe pollen. Yeah, I've been spending a lot more time outside. Yeah, I can tell those allergies are definitely acting up. I feel stuffy. I feel sluggish. The eyes are starting to water a little bit more. That's why I'm turning to Claritin D. Look, it's definitely helped me relieve my symptoms. It seems to work really, really fast for me as well. It's designed for serious allergy sufferers. Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongestion in your nose so you can breathe better. And hey, I'm noticing a lot of that right now. As a matter of fact, I'm looking forward to be able to enjoy much more outdoor time this spring and summer. A lot of that has to do with Claritin D. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom, it's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. might be a home home on the range but there are no deer and antelope playing this time it is episode 414 of the down and nerdy podcast i'm james with and we're gonna be talking about outer range the brand new prime video series which is like if yellowstone was a sci-fi series that's exactly what outer range would be and it's a really really neat show josh brolin stars and there's so many other great cast members as well as a matter of fact this week gonna be talking to imogen poots who's a member of that cast also lewis pullman isabella Ariaza and so many more from the show. Will Patton's going to be on the show this week. That's incredible. Love Will Patton. He's really good in this show as well. And there's going to be some others joining me too. You have to stick around and find out who that's going to be. Also, Chris Mancini, you might know him from the Comedy Film Nerds podcast. He's got a brand new comic out, graphic novel called Long Ago and Far Away. I'll talk to him about that. You heard the rest of that interview. You heard the other part of it on It's Comics Man, our brand new podcast. Also, David Leachwager is going to be joining me to talk about Octopus, Jellyfish, and Seahorse, his brand new photographic book, which is incredible from National Geographic Books. You're going to want to learn. We do science stuff every now and then here on the show. And yeah, we're going to talk about DC Overhaul, potentially. We're also going to talk about Anatomy of a Scandal. I'll give you my review of that. So there's plenty going on this week. Time to get to Outer Range. Going to talk about that with some of the stars, maybe even the creator of the show next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is John Sipos from Krypton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You've heard of Holy Land? Well, this might be the biggest hole of all. Outer Range has finally premiered on Prime Video. The first couple of episodes are now available. Before the show premiered, I got a chance to talk to a bunch of members of the cast and the creator of the series. I'm actually going to split that up. We're going to do some this week and some next week. I want to start with the mysterious Imogen Poots, who plays Autumn on the show. Very, very interesting character. Let's get some insight into that by her. Hi. Hi, Imogen. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. How are you doing? Doing very, very good. Thank you. As I'm watching these episodes, Imogen, I'm I'm just drawn to Autumn so much. I'm like, she's the most interesting character 
especially in the early early going of the show, how would you describe her to anybody that's going in fresh? I think she is someone who is burdened with curiosity. I think being curious is one of the greatest things you can be, but I think she's quite an extreme person. And, you know, I think uh, it'll, it's sort of a, she's an interesting experiment of a person to see what happens when you get too curious. <laughs> it's, in, it's interesting to me too, because she carries herself with a lot of con confidence, but also intrigue as well. How did you find that balance as you were getting into that character? Yeah, there's like a recklessness to people like that, I think. And in the script, it was suggestive of who she'd been reading, you know, philosophers and writers. And she certainly is a disciple of, of other people's mode of thinking. And perhaps that's sort of, it's a set of tools to kind of operate and move through the world with. And I think she's adopted those tools. And maybe that sort of acts as some sort of a shield because she definitely pushes boundaries. She does. And not only that, but she seems to have a way of drawing people to her or getting people to try. I don't know if, I don't know how kind of to describe it, to get people to trust her. What is it about her that makes people just want to kind of gravitate towards her? Because I, I feel like we see that with her. Yeah, maybe there's a sense that she's unsettling enough that that will provoke or prompt someone to you know want to listen to her and there are people like that out there there's sort of there's something very seductive about you know the patience they take or the way they listen and she's certainly kind of destabilizing that all-american way of life that you know the myth the myth has has uh presented for so many years she's definitely seductive in a very cerebral way too which which is that that's a very good way to put it i really love that so you have some great scenes, Imogen, with Josh Brolin, especially in these first couple of episodes. What was it like kind of working with Josh so much? And how much can you actually tease for us? I know probably not much about Autumn and Royal's kind of dynamic. Well, I loved working with Josh. Not only is he just a beautiful actor and our scenes together are always so fun and alive and unpredictable but he's just hilarious to be around it's hard to keep a straight face you know he's just super fun and it's so cool to see an actor of his his age and caliber still loving what he does you know really like loving getting the cast together loving being at work deeply kind person and in terms of the dynamic between the two of them I think a lot of the show is is that chess game of figuring out why they have the dynamic that they do and it should be unknowable and unnerving and perhaps confronting for him about his past and for her as well so yeah there's there's the show sort of delves into that it certainly does and you guys will find out when the first two episodes of outer range premieres on prime video on april the 15th imogen thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today i appreciate it thank you see you later I always love to get to the perspective of the show's creator in times like this, especially with a brand new show with a whole lot of mystery going on. That's why it was so great to get a chance to talk to Brian Watkins about the show. And he was actually joined by Sean Sipos, who plays Luke Tillerson on the series as well. Let's hear from them. Hey, James. Good to meet you. Hey, Brian, Sean, how you guys doing? Doing well, thanks. How are you? Very good, very good. Really love the show. Brian, I actually want to start with you. This is one of those shows I don't feel like you can really label it in one specific genre. So what do you what do you think defines the show and how would you describe it at its core? Sure. I, you know, I think the show at its core is about real people grappling with the unknown. You know, I grew up out West and to me, the West has been 
a place that's always been filled with equal parts wonder and strangeness and mystery and danger. And it's the kind of place I always tell people you can walk up to the edge of a tree line and stare into the forest and feel like you're looking into another world. And so from that came a story um, about a Wyoming rancher that stumbles upon a metaphysical void on his property. It sets in motion this chain of catastrophic events. And from those events, we start to see how the inner voids within him and within his family start to be unearthed. So the expression of that story goes from anywhere from wry humor to operatic tragedy and everything in between. But to me, uh, it, it really, it starts at the core of a, of, of a family and, and real people grappling with the unknown. No doubt about that. Speaking of family, Sean, the Tillerson family, very powerful, very confident group, too, from what I've seen, especially in the early episodes. How would you describe that family and Luke's place in it? Well, it's a, it's a very dangerous family. It's a very cold family. And uh, Luke's place is, is, you know, he's the he's the wanting child. He's the uh, he wants to be the golden child and he's worked for it his entire life. And he just never seems to it just always is out of his grasp, just out of his grasp which is sort of the re- what makes him who he is and the you know is sort of the the very center of uh, reason of all his actions that's a great way to describe it man great way to describe it brian we know that there's a mystery on the abbot land and we get to find out a little bit about that in these first couple of episodes what was the process like actually coming up with something unique like that to kind of set this story apart that people are gonna be like wow i've never seen that before yeah you know it was a big aim from the outset to make the sci-fi in the show not extraterrestrial but terrestrial to make it really of the earth of the soil to to kind of get at the emotional heartbeat of a, of a show that really is trying to ask or explore what it's like when the unknown meets us in our very backyards or at our kitchen tables or at, at, at our front doors and so to me, the, the feeling of being in the West, and you can look at a mountain range and see this wondrous landscape and then turn around and go into the strangest dive bar you've ever been to and, and meet the most peculiar characters on earth. We just kind of built a landscape that was rife with story. And, you know, we always talk about how the show is, is, is a bit of that Western traditional landscape slashed through with a, a dash of neon. So we hope that comes through and, and, and we, we think it will. No doubt about that. Talk about this amazing cast that you put together as well. And what made you decide to pick the right pieces for this rival family? Yeah, you know, I think the highlight of the show for me is the performances. I I think our ensemble led by the amazing Josh Brolin is like, you know, some of the best you'll see on TV. And uh, our our group that we have for this show are are true actors, actors. They are true craftspeople. And they dove into this material with sheer abandon. And, And I think what we have are truly electric performances. And those are expressed anywhere from the Tillerson brothers in Noah and Sean and Matt Loria and, and Will Patton and Dee Dee O'Connell, all the way to the Abbott family led by Josh and Lily Taylor, Tom Pelfrey, Lewis Pullman. And I think what we what we got is a cast that's willing to really go to the edges of their characters. I think the place we start in episode one is way different than the place we end up in episode eight. So I'm looking forward to audiences really going on that journey with us. And we have performances from some of the best actors out there that really, uh, you know, go to the absolute threshold of, of what their character would do. And it's so exciting to watch. And I really do love Luke's story as well, Sean. So that's really, really great. And you guys will see what's going on there April 15th when Outer Range premieres its first couple of episodes on Prime Video. Brian, Sean, thank you guys so much for the time. I appreciate you. Thank you. James. And finally, speaking of the Tillerson family, why wouldn't we hear from the head 
of the family right now. The great Will Patton, who plays Wayne Tillerson, got to call in and talk about the show as well. I love to get a chance to chat with him. Right. Wayne, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Uh, all right. Yeah. You're calling me Wayne. Oh, excuse me, Will. I mean, it's it's hard because I've watched all the episodes <laughs> now, good. so I almost feel I almost feel like you are Wayne at this point. <laughs> that's, that's right. I, that's right. I am. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Will, there's a lot of friction between these two families, the Abbott family and the Tillerson family. I mean, it's for a good reason, though. How do you think that Wayne actually views Royal? I think that there's a deep kind of secret to, to that, which I can't really talk about. But uh, suffice it to say that there's a lot more to that relationship than immediately meets the eye. It's, it's quite profound what the connection is and but of course i can't reveal that i can only say that it's uh, <laughs> it's there's a layer in there that is extraordinarily interesting to me that is an understatement for sure now wayne's sons yeah. actually <laughs> seem they're they're all very different personalities so how important is family to wayne would you say i'd say it's it's very important i think that you know both he and patricia have their favorites you know and that there may be something vibrating between Wayne and one of his sons in terms of how they look at things and feel things and, you know, see things. And maybe between the mother, Patricia, and the other one, it's a little more connected. But again, these these parent-children relationships are complicated and, and have many, many uh, layers to them. No doubt about that. Right away, we kind of find out that Wayne is a pretty mysterious guy. We know based on the trailer and the descriptions that there's something going on at the Abbott Ranch. Now, we know, Will, that Wayne's an old guy, but do you think maybe he knows more than we think he knows? I know he does. I know he does. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. And uh, now... He's a very determined and ambitious guy, Wayne. At least that's that's kind of the way I viewed him when I when I saw at least the first few episodes. Anyway, how far do you think he'll go, and how willing is he to get what he wants? I think you know it's interesting. I was talking to Brian Watkins, the writer, who's pretty uh, extraordinary. Uh, it's, like, it's like reading a good piece of literature to read the scripts. But I was talking to him, and there's this element in there where and I feel it. I think in these in these first episodes of everyone is kind of working towards some kind of transcendence and keeps just missing it. You know what I mean? And I think the level of what they're seeking really is on the level of transcendence at times, even though it's got the symbolic form and then the, the thing on the, on, on the face of the page, which is, well, I got to get that land, you know, and there's greed and, you know, you kill the animals. But on the, on the other hand, there's something on another level which is, I think what's interesting about the show is that it challenges our normal sort of foggy sense of what's real. No doubt about that. You get to work with Josh a little bit on this show, and, and I love the dynamic between the two of you guys. Really quickly, tell us, what were those scenes like that you actually got to, to work with Josh? Well, we, we'd, we'd worked together a long time ago in a thing called Into the West, where we went riding out to Alberta together for days on end. So we knew each other, and we encountered each other over the years and always i think had a mutual admiration for each other so it was great fun great as i say dangerous fun you know it's uh, not just like goofy fun it's like you put yourself in a kind of dangerous place and then you enjoy it you know we definitely like working together and that's for sure dangerous fun indeed and you guys will see that dangerous fun when outer range premieres on 
April the 15th on Prime Video. Will Patton, thank you so much for taking the time today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Let me tell you right now, it's not just about the mystery without a range from Prime Video. It's also about the, the just incredible character moments and family dynamic. This show has everything and an amazing cast with some great acting performances as well. So make sure you're watching the first couple of episodes of Outer Range right now on Prime Video and more episodes streaming from week to week. You're definitely not going to be sorry that you did. That's going to do it for my interviews with the cast and, of course, the creator of Outer Range. I'll have more of those coming up next week. But up next, going to switch to talk about Anatomy of a Scandal, my spoiler-free review of that show next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, this is D.B. Woodside from Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Nobody does a good scandal like the Brits, and it's a brand new series from Netflix called Anatomy of a Scandal. If you know the name David E. Kelly, that's the one who's behind this, writer, executive, producer. You know him from a whole bunch of of different legal shows. I mean, Goliath was one of his latest ones. And Melissa James Gibson also teaming up with him on this one as a writer and executive producer as well. And basically, if you don't know, it's, it just hit Netflix today. And it's a, you call it a psychological thriller. There's a little bit of courtroom drama there too. But really, is this is a political scandal type series. And you're dealing with James and Sophie Whitehouse, who are played by Sienna Miller and also Rupert Friend, and they are the power couple. He's a minister in the House of Parliament. They're a seemingly loving family. Problem is, is that, yeah, our boy James has a little bit of a secret, and it's not a good one. And this is where the scandal comes up. And you've got barrister Kate Woodcroft, who is responsible for putting old James behind bars. And that, of course, is played by Michelle. She's played by Michelle Dockery. Here's the thing. We've also got Olivia, who's the mistress in question here, played by Naomi Scott. There's a lot of really good individual performances in this show. And, you know, when you're watching the first episode, it's like, okay, yeah, this is getting off to a little bit of a slow start. But at the same time, then you're kind of plunged into this whole story about it's very suspenseful. There's There's a lot of sexual consent issues that are involved in this series as well. And it's it's not one of those simple type cases. I mean, maybe you think it's simple on the surface, right? It's all it's all a matter of do you believe James Whitehouse or not? Really, honestly, that's a really big part of this story. And and where where you take these episodes from there, you might not believe them from the get go. And if you've already read the best selling novel by Sarah Vaughn, you kind of already know where this thing's gonna go. So you know, don't spoil it for anybody else. But the way I saw it, it was very, very suspenseful for me because 
in true David E. Kelly fashion, they try and plant these seeds of doubt, right? Even if you think he's guilty from the get-go, there's certain things that sort of happen as things go on that maybe it might not necessarily change your mind, but you're going, okay, I see what they're doing here. And there was a moment when I'm watching Kate Woodcroft, who is a, I mean, you want to talk about a badass prosecutor. She certainly is that. But here's the deal. You kind of, there's there's a moment during the series where like, why is she doing that? I have no idea what's going on. And, and a lot of stuff that might not make sense as things are going will make sense close to the end. Not quite at the end. Episode four, especially. Things are going to make a lot of sense. Yes, there are flashbacks in this. And I know that sometimes you could be like, oh, really? Flashbacks? We're really going to do that? Trust me. The flashbacks are for a reason. The flashbacks make sense. There are certain connections that are made in the flashbacks. The flashbacks are part of a very big twist that comes up later on in the show. And, of course, then there's the ultimate conclusion of the trial, which you get in Episode 6, since this is a limited series. So, I mean, you have this really interesting scandal to follow and you know like is it is he guilty is he not sort of thing but then you also see they kind of get in deep on how it affects the family how it, not just the husband and the wife but the kids as well and the relationship the, the relationships that surround them too as far as you know, like picking the kids up at school when you know when everybody knows because your husband's a minister of parliament what's going on and then there's the political aspect to this as well that adds yet another angle to it. So there's a lot of twists and turns here. There's a lot of elements to this story. And man, is there a huge twist, at least one huge twist for me anyway, in this show that just made my jaw drop. I'm sitting here watching this alone, like in the middle of the night. And I actually yelled out, what? And you worry about waking people up when you do that sort of thing. But that's how big the twist was. And maybe I should have seen it coming. Maybe it's shame on me sort of thing. But I definitely did not see it coming but it's just so much intrigue in this show anatomy of a scandal now available limited series on netflix i'm a sucker for a good legal drama anyway but you throw in the scandal aspect of it too and just some knockdown amazing performances especially by sienna miller who i thought really really knocked it out of the park and michelle dockery too both of them were excellent in this series so yeah make sure you're watching anatomy of a scandal now available on netflix that's going to do it for my spoiler-free review of Anatomy of a Scandal from Netflix. Up next, going to talk to Chris Mancini about his brand-new graphic novel, Long Ago and Far Away, on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is a guy you might know from the Comedy Film Nerds podcast and a whole bunch of other podcasts, and he's been in a whole bunch of movies and stuff like that. And now he has a graphic novel called Long Ago and Far Away that is a ton of fun. Talking about Chris Mancini. Chris, how you doing, man? Good, good. Good to be here, James. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, Long Ago and Far Away, such a fun story. It almost feels like it's one that Kevin Smith wished he got to first, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so how much fun was it? to bring these two worlds of comic book fandom and fantasy together like this. 
It was really, really fun. And it was uh, it was something that I kind of grew up with. Like I read every fantasy book I could get my hands on from like Conan the Barbarian, the original Robert E. Howard stories to the Narnia stuff to Lord of the Rings. And it kept going and going in short stories, every, everything. And I would just read it all and absorb it. I would love science fiction and fantasy. And then I was like, you know, I, I got into comedy probably in my late teens. Uh, and uh, it just kind of felt like a good mix and i always thought like with narnia I'm like okay well these kids go into a, a a world they save the world from an evil witch and then they come back but then i always thought well what happens after they come back and they're 30 and they their lives have peaked at 13 and they, somebody becomes a jerk and then he has to go back into that world again as an adult but will he actually help this time it's funny that you mentioned narnia because i was getting serious narnia vibes when i was reading this i'm so glad that i that, that you said that because i was like oh, okay well now i'm validated by feeling that yes way. for so, sure <laughs> you talk about the being being a jerk because your main character jason he was he's the child knight but now he's kind of a prick yeah. In, in this old age. So <laughs> as you're creating this story, were you kind of concerned that readers just maybe just wouldn't like this guy? Yeah, it's definitely a concern, but it, it didn't stop me or want me to soften him because I feel like that's a conversation we always have with ourselves, like kind of that introspection. And when somebody's mean to other people and like they're mean to their friends and they, they're going nowhere, it's really that anger is really directed towards themselves and what they've done or what they haven't done. And I didn't want to soften that. I really wanted him to be a jerk. And I wanted there to be a very specific reason why he was a jerk and also make it because of his own actions and inactions and his own choices. So I really wanted to make it like a, almost like a, it's a very self-owning character. And the thing I love about characters that are flawed and unlikable at first is they have like such a journey to go on because they start from so far behind. So I always find that's a lot of fun. And also it's great to mine uh, comedy and humor from too. That is such a great point you made about them having such a long way to come. I think that that really, really rings true in the story for sure. I look at your secondary characters though, Chris, and they really balance Jason out. I feel like you've got Phil, he's easygoing. He's the true nerd friend that you have. You've got Marla, who's super smart and sarcastic, a lot of ambition. So do you feel like this group actually balances each other out well? And just this, this just kind of feel true to life when it comes to a group of friends, like everybody's got a friend like these people. Absolutely. It's and I wanted to also put like conversations that we would have about movies and TV and, and like that. Oh, yeah. So people can say, oh, I, I've had that conversation or that's totally how, how I feel. And, and uh, I also wanted to make that those friends, not only did they balance Jason out, but also they were a bit of his conscience as well, like, you know, to help him get on the right path. I've, I, Ultimately, he has to do it on his own, as we all do. But there's those supporting characters. And also, I wanted to make a statement about friendship, too. Like, you know, good friends stick around even when you don't deserve them. And I thought that was a really cool dynamic to put into the book. It's funny that you bring up the conversations that we have, because I feel like there's some pages and panels in this book that really could have been pulled right from a visit to your local comic book shop. If you've spent any time in a local shop at all, you've either heard or been part of these conversations. So I got I got to know were these actual conversations that you've been a part of at some point or were you just trying to trigger DC fans? <laughs> <laughs> I would say 90% of conversations I've had for sure mm -hmm. <laughs> with other fans you and, and, both, uh, and yeah. friends. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's just funny because there 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 was one in particular and I don't want to spoil it. There was an actual conversation I had 
about a year ago. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me right now? And that, that's, not that that's not a conversation that others wouldn't have had too, but mm-hmm. it, it was just very interesting that you, that you did that. Anytime you have anyone, someone from another world coming to experience our world for the first time, that feels like a comedy gold mine to me. So how much fun was that? And did you actually have to stop yourself from writing more jokes because I was coming up with them as I was reading your book. I can only imagine where it was coming from, from your perspective. Uh, absolutely. Like uh, when, when you kind of create the world, you realize that there's, there's more places everything can go and there's more places and more scenes that could be longer or, or different places. And a lot of that stuff I did save for like the next volume where, um, you know, we can, we'll, there'll be more jokes about going back and forth in between the worlds and, and where, where we can go from there. Ultimately, I kind of envisioned this as a bit of a trilogy, but uh, I also, I also approached it a little differently where like, I didn't want to like necessarily end the story on a cliffhanger, more like a, like a feature film trilogy where these are, these are coherent and cohesive contained stories, but they're part of a larger arcing story of like three large volumes. So I just approached it a a little differently. So you could get a full story here, but there is little breadcrumbs and hooks and hints that there's, there's more on the way. I was going to say, there's going to be a director's cut of this at some point, right? With (laughs) with all the jokes and the the red pen and the margins that you didn't put in that that's a a little extra, maybe Maybe there's many drafts. Maybe we'll get a big hardcover edition of the first of the first one at some point and get the, yeah. Get those nice little notes in there. Mm-hmm. Talking to Chris Mancini, of course, the creator of Long Ago and Far Away from White Cat Entertainment, which will be available on April the 12th. Now, Chris, you, you talk about mm-hmm. this being your first graphic novel and you talked about Mark Wade as well. It's mm-hmm. pretty great to get a forward from Mark Wade in your first graphic novel. I saw in the forward that people are going to be able to see when they read this that he actually thinks the story already should be picked up for a, either a, a movie or a TV series. And I'm not going to argue with him, that's for sure. But given that, have you ever kind of started that motion in your head of, you know, what your dream cast would be? I was like, oh, I'd love it if this person could play Jason and Marla and things like that. I have. It actually went through a little bit of animation development with another company, but didn't it didn't work out. So what we're doing is we're actually kind of retooling for like film and TV and to see actually where it can go. But as far as like casting goes, it's, you know, it, it's it's almost like, you know, when you put pitch decks together too, it's like a type where, you know, you have like Jason as like a Jack Black from like High Fidelity or or, uh, or a patent from, you know, from uh, anything that he's done, of course. But it, it, it's such an interesting thing with casting because it's like these these projects take so long, but by the time like an IP gets licensed and then it goes through development and then all of a sudden when the casting director comes, oh, all the people you picked, they're too old now. So, <laughs> so there's definitely types and, you know, those are the people I, I would definitely uh, want to get. And there's, you know, Marla and uh, Phil. And I, I always felt, uh, did you see a show called the IP, the IT crowd? That was, that seemed like that was a while ago. It was a while I ago. I remember like, watching it. Yeah. But that seemed yeah. like that was forever ago. It was, it was. And, you know, that's the great thing about streaming. You could discover shows yep. like literally a decade later. Mm-hmm. That's, that's very <laughs> um, true. One of the guys in the IT area, I, I thought he'd be great as uh, as Phil. Like Richard Iode, I, I I can't remember now. So you've got so many really fun characters in this story. I can't imagine you didn't have a favorite though. So who was your favorite to write as you were going through this thing? You know what? It's interesting. It's like as they say, writers like you put a little bit of yourself in every single character, and that is definitely true for this. I think you know Jason was probably my most 
fun character to write because I, I wanted to see like how far in the wrong direction I could push him until <laughs> until he started going in the right direction. But also Lord Montalban is was all, all those scenes were super fun to write. So I, I think those were probably my favorites. And then, you know, as writers, you always have a little special place in your heart for every single character. But those those two for sure. I think I like the most. Chris, before I let you go, anytime anybody's coming in to a graphic novel or a comic that's not from a, like a major publisher that they've all, that they've heard of, they, they're thinking, okay, so why is this the one that I need to pick up? Why is this the independent book that I need to pick up? So what is the one thing or a couple of things that you think really makes this book stand out that's going to make people really want to grab this thing? Well, I think one of the things too is it's uh, it was actually out from another publisher called uh, Starburns Press, the guys that did like Rick and Morty and that, but they're not publishing anymore. So I actually got the rights back and I'm, uh, I put this all together in a graphic novel. So it has been out before on Comixology. It's not there anymore. This is the re-release, but it has the foreword from Mark Wade, the extras. So this is like kind of the whole package. And I would say one of the things that I really want to push is that it does comedy and at least I, I hope it does it does comedy and fantasy equally it doesn't make fun of fantasy it's a funny fantasy story and one of the things i really wanted to take a lot of time with was the comedy on the page how does that translate to somebody laughing out loud while reading a graphic novel or, or giggle or get a smile because i always felt like comics could there was so much more right potential like there's very few really funny comic books like even like uh i remember fernando my artist said yeah comedy in comic books is often graded on a curve <laughs> i didn't want that to be the case for this book i wanted it to be laugh out funny like you were watching a funny show a, a funny movie and and that came through especially fernando's panels just some of the stuff he came up with with the way we did the pacing and the way the expressions and the characters and we we took a lot of time to really hone the jokes and then after crafting like a a poignant story too as well so i would say because this one's really funny that's <laughs> I, I will say this and and in all honesty i can't remember like you said the last time i laughed when i was reading a comic i did out loud at least twice awesome. in the first hundred pages reading this thing and it wasn't that the other ones weren't funny don't get me wrong there was a lot more funny moments than that but laughing out loud is not i agree not something you do when you read a comic very often and this one definitely did that so so mm -hmm. yeah you definitely accomplished that cool and you guys will find out exactly why when you get long ago and far away which is going to be available on april the 12th from white cat entertainment wherever you get your comics your gra graphic novels of course you can always go to whitecatentertainment.com to get more information on that and follow this guy on social media at chris mancini as well he's going to be I'm sure tweeting retweeting and yes chris j mancini chris so, j mancini yes on, on twitter so the other one was sure, taken make so. sure you i know that's we had the same problem at down and nerdy was taken I'm like, you gotta be kidding me you haven't yeah. been active since 2015 get out of here yep nobody everyone cyber squats they don't let go of anything yeah and, and yeah we thank them for that but you'll thank yourselves <laughs> if you pick up long ago and far away you got to read this thing from chris mancini thank you so much man for the time today i appreciate it awesome thanks james and I mean, you're going to feel like you're taken right inside some of the conversations you've had at a comic book shop, some of the people you've met at comic book shops. And yeah, just a fun fantasy story along with that long ago and far away now available if your local comic book shop. Maybe you, make sure you ask your local shop for this graphic novel. And of course, on digital and wherever you get your graphic novels. Thanks to Chris Mancini for joining me to talk about Long Ago and Far Away. Up next, we're going to be talking about the wonders of the deep with David Leachvager. Up next, I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
Hey, this is Josh Gates from Expedition Unknown, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You guys know that I'm fascinated by the sea. It's not the first time I've talked about it on this show. So if I get a chance to talk about octopus, seahorse, and jellyfish, I'm going to do that with a fantastic photographer for National Geographic Books. It's David Leachfogger. David, how you doing? Doing very well. Thank you. So, David, there's so many fascinating creatures of the sea. What made you decide to capture these particular three? I've always wanted to take pictures that the world has a use for. And because octopus, seahorse, and jellyfish are fascinating and actually hard to see, it was possible to convince other people, some of which at National Geographic, that this was worth really focusing on. So the book is a product of eight different projects. The major portion of it was three features, one each about octopus, seahorse, and jellyfish that were for the magazine, and then filled out with little bits and pieces from other things over the 12 years. So it's a compilation. So David, when people see a book like this, it's easy for the average person to just imagine you, you know, you tossed a camera in a bag and, and took some pictures and just traveled around the world. Talk about how much you really had to travel with to get these amazing shots, because I thought it was un unbelievable. It's about 10 cases and they weigh about 50 pounds each. So that's 500 pounds of stuff. So I don't, <laughs> sometimes people see me coming and they just shake their heads. You know, it's like, what, <laughs> what is this all about? But it, it lets, I mean, if you, if you want to photograph jellyfish and you're going to go halfway around the world to do it, you want to be able to photograph everything from their larvae, which are like the size of a grain of rice, to being able to light an entire aquarium, a public aquarium tank, you know, thousands of gallons of water. So, you know, that's a lot of baggage. I, I want lots, of, I want options. I, I want a high technical finish. So that requires a fair amount of hardware. Speaking of hard work, David, which one of these three do you think posed the biggest challenge for you as a photographer? Seahorses are incredibly shy. The first thing they want to do is turn away from you. That is, that's a challenge. Octopus, they just want to hide too, in a certain sense. But then at a certain point, they'll just sit there and look back at you. Jellyfish are just utterly foreign creatures on a certain level. So it's just the, the puzzle of trying to figure out how to show a creature in a way that I learn how they're made, how they live. That's my goal and that's my privilege and that's, you know, my joy. David, I'm going to start calling you the seahorse whisperer then based on these shots that you got. <laughs> I had a lot of help. The biologists and aquarists that helped me do all of this work, they make it possible because, you know, I, I don't, I wouldn't have access and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the information. David, before I let you go, during the nearly 12 years you spent capturing these images, did you learn anything new about these species that you didn't know before? Tremendous amount. I have to do some research before, but there's nothing like spending time with the scientist who studies it. The octopus gorgonus, which is this species that lives in the Solomon Islands, the scientist I was with actually described that species, meaning they, they wrote the, they studied some specimens that were preserved in alcohol, formalin, that were collected decades and decades ago. And they found these things in a museum collection and determined that it was a new species. So the scientist, Chrissy Hufford, had described the species from dead specimens. And I was able to have her come to the Solomon Islands to help me 
show the diversity of octopus in the Solomon Islands. And she actually collected live specimens of the creature that she'd previously described only from museum collections. That was a great thing to be able to see because she learned things and shared them with me that, you know, this is what the, li the live creature is very different from the, the museum specimen. It was, that was a great thing to be able to participate in. Absolutely incredible. And I think you guys are really going to be stunned by these images. Octopus, seahorse, jellyfish from National Geographic Books, which is now available. Big hardcover edition. Really love that. Wherever books are sold, and of course, online as well. And this guy is responsible for those images. It's David Litschwager. Thank you so much, David, for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks. So if you think you know about all octopus, jellyfish, and seahorse, you are wrong. Because when I was looking through this book, there were some species of, the, of those creatures that I had no idea existed. Just such vibrant colors and, and all kinds of weird details. There's some seahorse that don't even look like traditional seahorse at all, which was really, really neat. So, I mean, if you're really into the deep, and I wanted to be a marine biologist when I was a kid, so I was all down for this, for sure. Make sure you're getting octopus, seahorse, jellyfish from National Geographic Books, wherever books are sold. Thanks to David Leachfogger for coming on to talk about his amazing book. Up next, going to tackle some big nerd news this week on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Matt Ryan from Constantine City of Demons, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Could the rumors of a rebuild actually be true? It's time for nerd news. And one of the things I'm talking about here, this is the big story this week as far as I'm concerned. And this comes from Variety. And that is that now that the Warner Media Discovery merger has actually happened, they are pondering a complete overhaul of DC Entertainment. And that puts the comics right in there too. And this apparently is the mission of the new CEO of the joint companies. CEO David Zaslav. Now, here's the deal. I don't want to cut through. I don't want to talk about all the BS and all the jargon that's being used here about, you know, DC proper and all that stuff and, you know, vetted candidates and all that because you don't really you don't really care about that until the candidate is named and this actually happens. You don't really care about that. And I totally understand it. Here's what you care about. What does this mean exactly? And I can't tell you what this means exactly because I'm not in the room, but what I can do is give you my opinion. If your discovery, and that is, they it was forty plus billion dollars that they spent to acquire Warner Media, and you might remember that 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 just that deal just got closed last week, like biggest merger ever, sort of thing. Here's what you need to care about: is that if you're discovering, you're acquiring this major property, and who and say what you want about DC's movies and TV shows and things like that. You know, I love them, but that is a property that is just so rich in characters and stories and just dollars upon dollars. And they probably have more dollars if they were more consistent in what they were doing, especially in the film department. Now, if you're Discovery, you're coming in with fresh eyes. And if you've ever been a part of a company that's been bought out by another company or there's been a merger or something like that, the first thing that the, that the parent company, if you want to call it that, is going to look at and say, okay, what's working, what isn't? And if you look at certain aspects of DC Entertainment, you could make the argument that it's not working, especially Superman. And apparently that is one of the sticking points of this whole thing is Superman. They're like, we've got to, we've got to fix Superman 
we got to get this right. That's that's according to other reports as well. Because, you know, once one report gets out, then everybody says that they've got a person on the inside that's feeding them information and this, that, and the other, and rumors. And some of it's going to be true and some of it's not. And we'll sift through that once those once these things actually become fact. And I'm sure that after I record this podcast, somebody's going to come out with a statement saying that it's untrue and we're not doing that or it's not that big of a deal, blah, blah, blah. Okay, we know that... They'd be stupid not to look at things, right? They would absolutely be stupid not to look at things. They'd also be stupid not to find their Kevin Feige. But here's the problem. When you do that and you don't get the right person, that's a problem. You could look at Kathleen Kennedy, for example, for Lucasfilm. You could argue that things have been good when she's there. But you could also also argue that things have been bad because the vast majority of Star Wars fans, not me, but a vast majority of Star Wars fans did not like these last three movies. Now, you could say, okay, well, they, The Mandalorian that w- was successful and some other things, but guess what? You could say the same thing about DC. You could be like, well, you know, that first Suicide Squad movie, again, not my words, was trash, and there were so many other, you know, they screwed up Superman, you know, the whole Justice League debacle where they finally ended up releasing the Snyder Cut, but then you got Aquaman was good, Shazam was good, Peacemaker was good. Some of the stuff they're still doing in the Arrowverse is good. They're, that's just it. There's stuff that they're doing well, and then there's other stuff that they're, that they're not doing well. So it's a matter of consistency, and that's one thing that Marvel's been able to maintain. And if you're discovering, you're coming into this, and you're looking at, at that, and you're going, we need that model of consistency. You don't necessarily have to, again, I've said this for almost the entirety of, of me doing this show. You can't beat Marvel by being Marvel. You're not going to beat them by doing what they're doing with different characters because that doesn't make sense and people will smell that out a mile away. What you're going to do is have that model of consistency of picking the right filmmakers, picking the right cast, picking the right actors, and they have some of those already. It's not like the entire cast is trash of all these movies and shows. It's not. There's some stuff that could be better. There's some stuff that's working right now. Wouldn't you want to keep Jason Momoa? As Aquaman, wouldn't you want to keep Zachary Levi as Shazam? You can pick your Batman. I don't care. You could do several Batman for all I care. But you have to look at that model of consistency and find out, okay, what am I going to do here, there, and, and the other? Is Does that mean we're going to get more series spinoffs of movies instead of other, other, other series? Maybe. Here's the other thing I think that they'll look at. And this, again, just my opinion. When DC kind of farms out their shows to other networks like Fox or like even the CW, for example, and maybe maybe that's a bad example because there's some ownership there as well. But when you're when you're farming things out to the CW and you again, you're discovering you're coming in, you're going, why aren't these on our networks? You don't have to necessarily throw everything on HBO Max. You could, but you don't have to do that. You could certainly put stuff on TBS, TNT. And these are networks that are, you know, more prominent in in Warner Media. And, you know, to a lesser extent, the CW, it looks like the CW is going to be sold anyway. So if you wanted to, I, people are saying kill the Arrowverse. Okay, that's all well and good, but there's still some good shows that are in the Arrowverse. You want to kill Superman and Lois? Really? You want to do that? I'm still a big proponent of let's keep Batwoman. Let's let the Flash run as long as it makes sense, right? And then you can do spinoffs out of that. Or continue certain storylines and imagine how different they could be 
on another network where you've got a little bit of different set of rules. Remember when the Marvel Netflix series first came out? How different that was because they were on Netflix? And yes, that did make a difference. That's something that they have to consider. But I agree, you got to fix Superman in the movies. You got to fix that. Does that mean bringing Henry Cavill back? Maybe. We'll just have to wait and see. Maybe somebody else has got a better idea. But the thing I don't want to see out of this, and I'm already seeing it, and I know what's going to happen, is here comes Snyderverse fandom, right? Saying, oh, this is our chance. They're going to restore the Snyderverse. Everything's going to... All right, let's just pump the brakes on that. They might partially do that. I'm not saying they won't do it. I'm saying they might partially do it. I could see them maybe doing that for certain things. And I'm not going to sit here and pick and choose, right? But again, Gal, Gal Gadot, you're going to get rid of her as Wonder Woman? I doubt it, okay? There are certain characters that were part of what you could call the Snyderverse that makes sense to remain in their roles, should that be what they want to do. I, I can't imagine you'd want to completely overhaul the whole thing because that just doesn't make any sense at all. So... We'll have to see if this is actually a thing. Is it not a thing? We're going to have to wait and find out. I'm very, very curious, though, to where they're going to go with this. Really quickly, I wanted to talk about the a few trailers that dropped. You've got Stranger Things, Season 4, Volume 1, which is going to be coming out on May the 27th. And basically, the, the big things from this is we've got Eleven, who says she's lost her powers. You've still got Hopper in the Gulag, looking like he's spear-fighting with Demogorgons. You've also got the Big Bad, who looks like kind of like a spider swamp thing. <laughs> Did you see that at the at the end? And I'm, I'm not going to dig into like character names and stuff like that, but it's a whole, hey, we thought getting you kids away from Hawkins was the right thing to do. And guess what? Now we kind of need Eleven back because we can't win this war without without her and then you see all these you know like bats flying around the creole house and all this different you know red and all that stuff it's it looks scary and you get robert unglin there for a second there you know with the with the kind of like stitched up eyes and it's really really creepy yeah it sets a really creepy tone and by the way these are still teenage kids too let's not forget that little factoid these are still teenage kids trying to be teenagers and navigating that's not going to be very easy either especially when you you know you've got this weird you know creepy vibe about you, about your group anywhere where somebody's somebody's always in danger or something like that and especially now that things are kind of I wouldn't say more well known but like and I think that Max is going to play a bigger role in this season I don't know why and and we obviously we know Billy's fate you kind of figured that anyway but we know Billy's fate for sure but I just got a feeling that Max is going to play a big role in this season. So wait till you find out what's going to happen on Stranger Things. Season 4, Volume 1, May 27th is the day for that. I cannot wait. One thing that spun out of the Nickelodeon Kids Choice Awards was the trailer for Pause of Fury, The Legend of Hank. And now this one is really, really interesting because it actually follows a samurai dog played by Michael Sarah, And he's looking for... A samurai mentor, actually, and one of the reasons is, you know, he he was bullied. He wants to he figures, you know, becoming a samurai. That's going to help him out a little bit. Problem is, the place he goes to train, it's all cats. And what do cats hate? Dogs, right? So it's not like he's actually going to be welcomed with open arms there. But you know, you have his reluctant teacher, which is Samuel L. Jackson. You get to see part of that in the trailer, and you know, it's obviously a kids' movie. You know, you get your fart jokes here and there, and and there's some very kid kid humor as well. But one part that made me really laugh out loud in this trailer is there was like a, you know, like, my, like 
Samuel L. Jackson censoring himself, like Samuel L. Jackson as Ned Flanders covering up the cuss words with other words. I thought that was really well written. And if we're going to get stuff like that in this movie, that's the kind of humor I like. And you've got Michael Sarah, you've got Ricky Gervais is going to play the villain. Mel Brooks is even in this, George Takei. So there's a really good cast for this as well. It looks like a really, really fun movie from Paramount Pictures and Nickelodeon movies. I, I think that this is one that my kid will certainly like. And I think that this is one of those things, you you know, maybe you finally take the kids to the theater to see this one. I also want to talk about Bosch Legacy real quick, because we're going to have some interviews with the cast of Bosch Legacy coming up on a future podcast. That one's on Freevee on May the 6th. I say Freevee because it, that was IMDb TV. They've rebranded as Freevee. And now we're seeing as we get into the show, Bosch is a PI now. He's got a very interesting case that he's taking on. He took on some small time stuff. Now he's going to be taking on a very, very interesting case that, you know, I can't get into too much. You saw a little bit of that in the trailer. You got Maddie struggling to, to start her way through the LAPD, not because she sucks, but because there's certain challenges that are being brought in front of her. And then you've got Chandler, oh, honey Chandler, who had that near death experience. And we're going to see maybe a different honey this season. That's going to be the really intriguing part is to see how she's kind of changed and the cases that she takes now is going to be really, really something, I think. And, and this just, it feels so Bosch, doesn't it? Just from the trailer, you feel like, okay, this is a new show, but there's still some very, very familiar vibes there. It's like it's like that friendly old blanket. You've got a lot of new blankets. They're really soft and comfortable, but you've got that one blanket where you go, ah, old reliable. This is one that I always come back to. And that's, and that's Bosch Legacy. I think for me, because it still feels like Bosch so much. And we'll see that on May the 6th on Freevee. I want to sneak this one in too, because HBO Max just announced a series order for Dead Boy Detectives from Berlanti Productions. I mean, who else would be doing a DC, DC show, right? This is actually spun out of the pages of The Sandman. And Stephen Yockey, who did The Flight the flight Attendant in the Doom Patrol, is going to be part of this. He wrote the pilot and then you've also got Jeremy Carver, who was a part of the part of Doom Patrol as well. And then you've got Berlanti and Sarah Schechter, who, because, you know, they tend to team up on a lot of things as well. And we get to see this story, which is basically about these these two ghosts, these two ghost teenagers. And there's, you know, there's plenty of, you know, grief and loss and things like that that are that are a part of this. But it's a horror detective series, basically. And we see it through the eyes of Edwin Payne and Charles Rowland who are going to be played by George Rextrew and Jaden Revery, respectively. So, again, a, a spinoff of, of The Sandman, kind of, but there's a lot of different type spinoff stuff that you can get from The Sandman. Plus, you've also got a friend of theirs who is very much alive, by the way, in Crystal Palace. The way they describe it is it's like vintage detective series, only darker and on acid. And from the success of Doom Patrol on HBO Max and previously on DC Universe, you could understand why they'd want something more like that or similar to that. So doing something like this makes a lot of sense in doing it now. But I also wonder if this means we're not going to get too much more Doom Patrol and that this might take its place at some point. I kind of hope that's not the case because I think that there's more story there to tell for Doom Patrol. But this certainly seems like it could be a replacement type series. Although, I mean, having them both run at the same time, I'd certainly be up for that as well. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my many, many guests. 
that joined the show this week. If you want to keep up with what we've got going on, social media is a great way to do that. At Down and Nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram. At Down and Nerdy on Facebook. And don't forget, downandnerdypodcast.com. That's where you can get all kinds of news and we got videos up there sometimes as well. And you can learn about our brand new podcast, It's Comics Man, and where you can subscribe to that as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.